Well, one of the things I really like about our church is the way that they, the church teaches us to align our lives around seasons. By coming to worship, we're immersed in a life cycle. The stories of Jesus are what make the season. Life is supposed to revolve around the life of Jesus. For example, the season of Lent leads us to the cross, to that empty tomb of Easter. Then we have Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Most recently, right, we just finished Advent and Christmas. And like Stefan said before he read that from, a, uh, from uh, Isaiah chapter 60, we're moving into the season of Epiphany, a time that starts with the wise men and then follows our Lord. And we're going to see Jesus being baptized. We're going to spend time hearing about his teachings and reveling at all of his healings and miracles. And really the season of epiphany in our church celebrates how Jesus, the light of the world, has come to bring us hope and come to bring each one of us purpose. How we haven't been left in the dark trying to figure life out on our own, but rather Jesus has come and shows his light to us so that we may live and follow him and experience life. And today we, we get to see and we get to marvel at the wise men who, through these human eyes that each one of us has, see just this ordinary child of Bethlehem, but by faith teach us to see so much more. So let's pull out our Bibles. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. It's on the back of the order of service that you got to when you got in, and of course it'll be on the screens as we go through it. But as we've been doing, I like to do this before we go into God's Word. We're of course going to ask Him uh, to open His Word to us through prayer. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that You would open our hearts, that just like You led the Magi all those years ago, Lord, that You would lead us by Your Word that we would know absolutely that you have included us, that you have called each one of us by name. So as we read your word, Lord, let your love just shine upon us. Let us feel that gaze of love that you look at us and let us take what you give us and turn that into praise as we worship you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here's our text this morning. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now the word Magi originally described members of the Median and the per Persian priestly caste who would advise the king and would interpret the king's dreams. Now later it was used more broadly to kind of denote those who possessed some sort of mystical knowledge like priests or astrologers, soothsayers, sages, and then it became the three kings, which is a little bit more popular today because as you know... The song goes, we three kings of Orient are. They did that because it turns out we three magi of Orient are just doesn't feel as good. It's not a number one hit, that's for sure. So in the Jewish tradition, though, to be a little bit more serious, magi would bring to the mind the opponents of Daniel. Now, you'll remember in Daniel, he was in Babylon, he was in exile, and he was associated with these magi, these enchanters, these sorcerers who claimed to be able to interpret dreams and signs. And we may not know exactly what these magi were or who they were or even where they came from apart from being in the east. But the one thing we can be certain of, the one thing that Matthew really almost starts his gospel showing us right away is that no one would expect magi from the east to be among the first to come and worship the Jewish Messiah. 
Others said it was the planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which gave the appearance of a bright single star in 7 BC. Then there were others who said, no, there was a stellar explosion, a, a nova, which was reported to have been sighted between 5 and 4 BC. They are trying to create naturalistic expressions to decide what was this star that was in the sky. But one shortcoming of these naturalistic explanations of what the star actually was is that how was it leading the Magi? How did it come to rest, as we're going to see in verse 9, over the house where Jesus was staying? Really, the text is suggesting that the nature of the star in Matthew's gospel is God's extraordinary way of leading the Magi to the Messiah. And I read in this really interesting commentary that the star guiding the Magi is supposed to be this angelic figure. In the Jewish tradition, we see throughout that the stars were associated with angels. And the guiding star in Matthew's gospel recalls that time in the Old Testament where God sent his angel to guide the people in the desert through the fire, through the light, on the way to the promised land. So we may think and want to find a stellar phenomenon that would initially say that this is what it was, but really Matthew is telling us that this is God showing his people, making it clear in a supernatural way that my son has come and something special is happening. There is a new light in this world that you must see. But isn't it interesting that what we know about this star and how it's guiding the Magi to Jesus they first go to Jerusalem, which is understandable, right? Because if you were coming from the east, you would expect that the leaders and the people of the capital city of the Jews would be more interested and would know all about this new king that has been born to them. And so they go to this main city. They go to the main temple. They go to where Herod is, and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the, e er, uh, in the east, and we want to worship him. They are assuming that the leaders of the Jews would be aware and would be excited about the birth of their king. And the Magi find out that this wasn't the case at all. See, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. No doubt Herod would be disturbed. He was paranoid to begin with. He was a ruler who wasn't Jewish, and I doubt that he wanted to hear about a new Jewish king that had been born. Not to mention that it was very well known that Herod would not hesitate to kill any of his rivals. That Herod was politically savvy. He was well-connected. It did not do well to cross Herod. But did you see that part, what it says about Jerusalem? that all of Jerusalem is also disturbed. And for what will not be the last time, look who all gathers together when it's about this Messiah. The chief priests and the teachers of the law getting together to discuss the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus. 
They answer Herod, they say, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. This comes from Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. People from the east arrive and announce that a star has appeared, announcing the birth of their king, the promised Messiah. And these teachers of the law, these followers of God, know the prophecies. They know what they're supposed to be looking for. And here's the first news that they have, and what do they do? They give facts to Herod and then are not heard from again in this story. I think they're disturbed because what they really feel is indifferent about this message. See, they know what the Messiah is supposed to come and look like, but they're not going to do anything about it. They hear the news that their king has been born, the deliverer, the promised Messiah is here, and they don't act on it. They know about Numbers 24, 17 and how the star will rise like a scepter, signifying that the king has been born. They even quote this passage in Micah, understanding not only is the king, the Messiah, going to be born in Bethlehem, but that he will be a ruler. He will shepherd them. He would restore them, would give them the very things that they long for. And here they are holding on to all the right information, but it, the announcement, they seem personally indifferent to the news of the Messiah. Or perhaps they're just terrified at what Herod is going to do with this announcement. And so they simply give Herod the information. And this is the part of today's text where I want you to actually enter into. I want you to take a break and I want you to think, what would it have been like to be one of those teachers of the law, one of those scribes? You have existed under the reign of Herod you know exactly what this man is capable of doing. And suddenly visitors from out of town have come. People who are not your people are announcing that your king has come. And now this king, this ruler, this Herod, gathers you together and demands you tell him everything that you know about where this child is supposed to be. What would you do? Would you give in to the indifference? Would you give in to the fear? Would you say nothing? I think about today. Each one of us has in our pockets information on our phones. We get texted by our friends, by our family, day or night, expected to respond immediately, bombarded with information on our cell phones, with horrible news all around the world at the very moment it occurs. We watch shows of superheroes destroying buildings, planets, hurting people. We listen to crime podcasts showing the terrible things that people do to each other. All of this information, all of this dramatic, horrible stuff, and we consume so much of it. We become used to it. We start to shut down emotionally and mentally to become indifferent to it, to distance ourselves from it. We're attracted to it, maybe even need it. But we lose the personalness of it, the relationship of it. And we spend so much time with it as entertainment and media that when real problems of our own lives and our own families, our own communities and our own countries come, 
that would require us to get personal, we allow ourselves to do what we do with our entertainment, we become indifferent to it, we depersonalize it. No doubt these scribes just sat there and said, so some star says a Messiah is born. So these people from the East are here. What do they know about Jews? What do they know about the Messiah that I want? Besides, there's been plenty of revolts. And to be honest, no one is ever going to stop these Romans. They're too strong. Certainly not some baby. So let's just give Herod what he wants. It's not like we know this baby. It's better the baby than it is for us. Because really, what could we do? Because if they were to show any joy, any interest at all, they would not risk the, the, the risk of being canceled. Friends, they would have been killed. And they know it. And here in this moment, those scribes, those teachers of the law, those ones who are supposed to do something, feel that it is easier to stay indifferent, to live in fear, than it would have been to step forward and do something that is right. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us feel that each day of our own lives, where we work, where we live with our families, how easy it is to just distance ourselves from the personalness of things. How easy it is to say nothing. How easy it is to go along rather than do what is right. Verse 7 says, Herod calls the Magi secretly and finds out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Sends them to Bethlehem, says, go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, tell me, so that I too may go and worship him. Nothing but lies and deception. No one says anything against the powerful Herod. No one says anything against a corrupt system, against a dangerous situation. But the text says that after they had heard the king, they go on their way. And here's a little lesson, a promise of hope for us here. Indifference and fear begins to stop when we begin to trust that God himself, our Lord Jesus, is not indifferent to us nor afraid of what we have done. The Lord does not look at you and remain indifferent to you or afraid of what you've done, thinking that you are just bombarded with sin and you are so weak. You have promised me time and time again that you won't do that anymore, but here you are continually sinning. He never says that. Instead, he stretches out his hands. He leaves the 99. He makes a way for you, comes to you. He doesn't stay far away, but enters into your mess and says there is too much. There is too much love that I have for you to ever let anything come between us. How many times have I stood here and quoted to you that verse from Romans 8? That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the promise to us. That God does not look at us and want to stay away. But rather God walks into the darkness that we exist in and shines his light. That's why we call this epiphany. The light has shined and it's a light that fills us and covers us. It's a light that we have our identity in. 
It becomes who we are, His, baptized into His name, into His light. And we trust that God is not indifferent to us, but rather dies and rises for us. We trust that God loves us, that in this very moment, wherever we are at, He comes close and says, you are mine. Trusting that God wants us to grow, to unfold, to experience the fullness of life. He comes to give us a heart that is like his heart. Look as the text continues. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the very place where the child was. The Magi, in the face of the indifference of the Jewish people and Herod's lies, keep going and the light appears. And maybe that's the message for you today. That with how things are, you found yourself asking, can I trust that the light and the love of God is here with me in this darkness? And you better believe, friends, that the answer is yes. The light and love of God makes everything better, enables you to keep going. The light doesn't go away from you or shine only when things are going well for you. Regardless of the diagnosis or anything that is coming your way, the light of Christ is there shining and covering you and filling you. Screaming at you to say, don't give in to indifference. Don't give in to fear. Instead, trust that I am yours. I love the story of the Magi because Christ challenges us to be passionate, to trust in him, to not be lukewarm. Look at what the Magis did. They go Look at the saints that have gone before us. Think of someone like Mother Teresa. This is a small step, friend. She did little things. She entered into a situation that was ridiculously dark. All sick people, all untouchable people, people who had nothing. And she entered into it to do one thing for the person in front of her, one at a time, over and over and over again. That is what Christ is calling you to do. The Magi took one step. They followed the light, and you can too. Maybe you won't be able to save everyone that you know, but the one that you witness to, it's the little pieces. It's the little pieces of doing the work that God puts in front of us, opening ourselves up to trusting in him and trusting that his light will show us and give us the words to say. God is the one who saves the world. And he invites us to do our little part. He doesn't say wait for someone else to follow the light. He calls you to it. To believe that helping the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the vulnerable, he invites you into that and says this is important. This is what it means to live in epiphany, to live by the light of me, is to take that step and follow. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. The light appeared and they were filled with joy. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and they worshipped him, opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They took the step to worship, to worship in joy and trust. And that's, that's why I think we are here today, because this is how we want to live, to worship the Father filled with joy and trust. And if you're asking yourself, what does it 
mean to worship? What does it mean to bow down and say you are worthy, that you are God, to show admiration, reverence, honor? Friends, the worship is the praising, it's the speaking, it's the praying, it's the offering, it's the leaving and responding. The service that we attend is designed to teach you how to live a life of worship. You come to church not for what you get out of it, as if worship was something that God gives to you, but rather something that he is aligning your hearts so that you can overcome this darkness and cry out. We come together to ask for forgiveness, to be given the power to change, and we hear that we are loved and forgiven by God. We sing songs, whether we're belting it out or whispering it because we can't sing or just simply reading it, we are worshiping God when we're doing that. When we speak that creed, when we confess what we believe, that we will die before we turn our backs on what our Lord Jesus has done for us. We align our hearts as one people and we pray because that is what we do from the beginning. We gather together to prayer. We call out for healing, for deliverance. We give thanksgiving to God. We ask for his redemption. The prayers, apart from the sacraments, become some of the most powerful things we do together as the body of Christ. Each one of us aligning our hearts to go to the Father in a common way. That's what worship becomes for us. It becomes the way we live our lives. It's never meant to just happen on Sunday alone. We are to continue worshiping, to respond on all the things that we have received here when we gather together to go out and love one another. And the story, they brought their gifts. And today we bring ours. And in a very powerful way, the gifts that we bring, he takes and then gives us gifts. He fills you with courage and joy. He fills you with hope. He gives you what you need, not so that you can make it through and limp along, but friends, so that you would be filled with joy, that you would be able to take it and share it with those who don't yet have it. You are filled to be emptied again because he gives the spirit to you, the joy, the love without limit. He has promised to give you everything that you need. So I'm telling you that small steps of following the light, small steps of going out and trying just something little will have a big effect. And there is a lot of small things to do. Whether that's nailing a nail into a wall to build a home for someone, sitting with a child, working the tech board in the back, greeting someone when they say hello, encouraging other moms at mom's life, growing with other men on Tuesday mornings or Wednesday mornings, going to Bible study on Thursday, showing up on the fourth Saturday and feeding someone, little steps that have profound, big impacts. Little lights, little lights of the world, each one of us, shining for Christ, make a huge impact. That's what epiphany means, that the light of the world has come and it will be not be stopped no matter what. So we gather to give praise, to worship, to live in joy and trust for what our Lord has done.